This is Warning Radio with Dr. Jonathan Hansen, founder and president of World Ministries International, a non-denominational end times ministry dedicated to fulfilling a divine commission to trumpet forth warnings from God concerning the imminent second coming of Christ and the impending judgment of God upon the ungodly. God has sent Dr. Hansen to many nations of the world with a solemn warning to the political and religious leaders and citizenry to repent of their sinfulness and wickedness or face the catastrophic judgments that will soon be unleashed upon the unbelieving world. Listen now to the warnings of our compassionate and merciful Creator conveyed through His faithful prophetic spokesman, the host of Warning Radio, Dr. Jonathan Hansen. Welcome to the program, Warning. Today, Pastor Ty Gullstrom shares a message that was recorded December 3, 2005. His title is, No Strings Attached. Now, let's begin. Well, I really um, was blessed by our time of worship today. I said it in our pre-service prayer time back in the back, but when I see the Spirit of God and resting on people in our worship team and raising them up, developing them, that's encouraging. Amen? All of a sudden, I'm seeing people do stuff up here that I didn't even know they could do. And I'm like, Lord, that's awesome. That's awesome. There's some churches out there that, you know, they'll put an ad in a newspaper for a drummer. You believe me? But what I'm saying is that God can raise up people in the house. Amen? Amen. God can put his anointing, his presence, his spirit, and he can raise a gift out of a person. And uh, when I see people like Jessica and Kristen and others that are putting themselves in a position to be used, making themselves available for the Lord... God says, I like that, puts his spirit upon them, and they're able to help lead people into the presence of God. It's awesome, isn't it? There's something, I'm not a worship leader. I don't play an instrument, but I just know by living with a worship leader that there's something so special and so awesome about leading other people into the presence of God. And it's the same, I think, also as being a Christian or a pastor. There's, there's nothing like leading someone to Jesus Christ. If you need something to fuel your faith, it's just sharing Christ, have a people see Christ and respond to it. That is the fuel. I mean, there's a fuel to it. I mean, there's, there's such an excitement. No triple grande latte can measure up to leading someone to the Lord. Amen? I told this story before. Back in 1997, when I was just a pretty new Christian, I remember going on that first, actually my second mission trip when I went to Africa. And I remember I've told the story, but there was that time where I've never really shared my faith. And Pastor Hansen said, well, we're at this park called Aruhu Park. It's a huge park. And he says, why don't you guys just split off in twos and go out and share Jesus? And I remember every form of anxiety just coming up in me. I was like, what? Oh, me? Share my faith in Africa? And I felt so inadequate. And you know who the partner I chose? I just happened to choose Tamara. We were courting dating at that time. And uh, I felt that it was a great opportunity for us to get to know each other a little better. And so I made sure that her and I uh, went out. And then we felt very... <coughs> I thought first for a second there that that was going to pass right over. But, <laughs> but 
But anyway, I remember our inadequacies came together, and we both together had synergistic inadequacy. And we looked at each other and like, wow, what do we do now? And we just got down on our knees, and we said, Lord, we don't know what to do. <laughs> Would you help us? Would you do something? Would you help us to overcome our fears and to do the righteous thing, the courageous thing? And we just got up and walked, and we started walking. It wasn't within five to seven minutes, I think, of walking that somebody saw two white people walking in Uruhu Park, and they came up and started talking to us. And we just started talking to them about Jesus. I think the first person that came up was a man named Ephraim, and he was a Christian man. And it's so all of a sudden we felt, ah, this is good. And we just started talking with them, and then probably within 15 or 20 minutes, there was probably about five or six people that came. As two white people were talking to this other brother. And next thing we know, we were telling you know, four, five, six people about Jesus, and we never went to anybody. He brought them to us. And I believe that there are times where you've got to go to a specific person. But I also believe that if you will truly make yourself available to the Lord, and he knows in the heart of hearts that you're available, He'll bring people to you. Why? It's the same thing with that whole parable of sorts that Jesus, when the fishermen came in and they've been all night out fishing, they went out fishing. They went out for the purpose of gotten fish and they came back with nothing, right? And Jesus was giving them a demonstration of through me and through my Holy Spirit, I will bring fish to you. Cast your net right there. You know, I almost see this, who casts their net at the dock. You know what I'm saying? Who does that? Nobody does that. You know? You go out to the deep waters. You go out at the transitions. You go out. They knew where to go. And they went out in their own thinking, their own ways, and they went fishing. They, could, they grabbed nothing. And as they're basically mooring their boats, as they're docking, Jesus says, why don't you just go out there a couple feet and just throw your net over? And they could hardly bring the thing back in. Jesus says, with me, I will make you fishers of men, but I will also bring fish to you. I'll bring them to you. And there's something so exciting about that. There's something exciting about a life group that has new people coming in. There's something exciting about a fellowship of believers coming together and seeing new people come in. It's exciting. I think Dr. Mike probably has more of an evangelistic thrust in his ministry, can sense that there's an excitement about giving away Jesus to people and having them sink right into it. It was exciting. And um, the Lord wants to do that. He wants to bring in people. He wants to bring in fish. He just is looking for a people that can truly give away life, can truly give away the agape love of Jesus Christ. And that's why he's answering our prayers. We have cried out, Lord, we want to have revival. We want, Lord God, to be able to give away Jesus. And he said, okay, First, I'll heal your broken heart. Because in woundedness, in my woundedness, I wound people around me. I see it all the time with my wife. My woundedness wounds her. My woundedness wounds my children. Yeah, is that right? Our woundedness is going to wound other people. And the Lord says, I don't want you to give away woundedness. I want you to give away my love and my life. He says, I'm going to answer your prayer. You've called out for revival. He says, I'm going to send it. and I'm going to start with you. And I'm going to heal up your broken heart and set free you from your captivities. And then we'll progress from there. Amen? Amen. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost ends of the earth, he's starting in Judea. He's starting in the heart. He's starting with you and me. Amen? Amen? And he's doing a work in us. And I hope that people can capture, and I think most of us can, 
The Lord is so obviously trying to do this. He is desperately crying out and saying, Will you please let me heal up your wounds to bind up your brokenhearted? Do you have a sense of rejection in your life? I love that book that is for the next Bible college class. I don't know if how many people have launched into it yet. But it isn't within the next first maybe 20 pages where he gives a definition of rejection and it really revealed something to me. He says, rejection is imperfect love. Rejection is imperfect love. You know, as I was growing up, I shared this, I think, on Wednesday night. I always thought that, you know, my dad was raised in a family that had no acknowledgement of God. His dad was very emotionally suppressed. And all the years that I knew my grandfather, he died a few years back, but never had a meaningful conversation with him. He couldn't have a meaningful conversation. Those tools were in the bag. He could talk about golf. He could talk about the weather. He could talk about everything that was superficial, but anything meaningful he could not talk about. He could not do it. It's not a matter he would not do it. He could not do it. He had nothing within him to give. And my dad grew up with this. And of course, you reproduce after your own kind. Wounded people wound people. Hurt people hurt people. And so he, my grandfather, by not being able to emotionally attach to my dad, passed on a huge amount of rejection. Why? Because as a man growing up, or as a woman growing up, you need to be taught how to be a woman. You need to be taught how to be a true man. My dad got none of that. And of course, as you know, those things pass on. I was raised with that with a dad that didn't know how to give me anything emotional, didn't know how to bond with me, didn't know how to have intimacy with me. Intimacy is scary when you're wounded. It's scary. So what do we do? Usually we fill up our lives with other things so we can avoid intimacy, right? I mean, I do it all the time. I find myself trying to find something to do when there's a time of intimacy that you know is going on there. Most people in churches or anyone else, during the meet and greet time, they don't like that. All of a sudden, they got to go to the bathroom. they got to do this. It's a time of looking at someone in the eye, maybe give them a hug. People are scared of that. Go to a place where you haven't been before with people you don't know. There's a time where they make available to meet and greet one another. We get real kind of apprehensive about that. We don't know how to have intimacy. We don't know how to commune with somebody, to talk with somebody. And I was raised with that from my father who didn't know how to pass along any intimacy to me. And I always thought that was the main area of my rejection in my life. And it was a huge area. But you know what happened with my mom? And I share this, if she was here, she'd love to share the same testimony. She was raised in a very legalistic and kind of hypocrisy-based Christianity where they were always at every church service and everything else, but there was a whole lot of emotional and verbal abuse that was passed down to them from especially their mother. And what happened is my mom was so quenched by that, so damaged by that, so hurt by that, that she went totally the other extreme when she had children. And she lavished upon us all sorts of material blessings. I mean, Christmas at our house, I tell you what, you don't need to go to the toy store, just come over to the Goldstrums. I mean, we couldn't even get into the living room. And I am not kidding you. You could hardly see the tree. It was just mounded and piled. She spent two nights, all night, no sleep, just wrapping. I mean, she just lavished all sorts of material stuff on us. And she didn't have any real responsibility she passed on. She didn't give us chores. She didn't give us responsibilities. You produce responsible children by giving them responsibilities. I had no responsibilities growing up. When I got in trouble at school, which I did a lot of that, principal's office getting in fights, I mean, that was a regular part of my growing up. Why? Because I had this anger and this hurt inside me. 
And if people didn't give me what I needed, I would react in anger. I remember one time, you know, someone not doing what I wanted to, and I, I didn't even think about it. I just punched him in the face. <laughs> I mean, that, I remember that. I was so hurt and so damaged that I couldn't get them to do what I wanted to. It was this instant anger, instant reach out and hit them. But anyway, my, my mom was so damaged and so hurt and so manipulated and so controlled and so abused verbally that she wanted to do everything but that in our lives. And what that came out with was love with no restrictions, love with no responsibility. It's not agape love. It's more of an eros love. It's a self, you know, it's, that's where the church is at for the main, when you think about it, is it's a love of God with no responsibility or obligation. And I didn't recognize it until I was reading that book. And it wasn't just like 10 days ago. I was reading that book, and it gave that definition that rejection is imperfect love. And instantly, instantly, I wasn't thinking about my mom. I wasn't thinking about my, my growing up. But instantly as I read that, the Lord gave that revelation that just as much rejection that I received from my father out of his wounds and his pains, as equally as that, I received rejection from my mother because of this imperfect love lavishing blessings, quote-unquote, lavishing things, lavishing no responsibility, no curfews. I mean, I remember being 13 years old. I didn't have any curfew. Why? Because she was in herself so rejected in her growing up years that she didn't want me to reject her. And so she would have no confines, no bounds, no responsibilities because she was afraid of me rejecting her. That's why I'm so desperate that people take this class because I believe that God is trying to do something in our midst. He is bringing revelation of our woundedness. He is bringing revelation of our dysfunction. He's bringing revelation of our rejections and our wounds, the decay in our hearts. And I believe as you read that book and as you go through those 10 hours and 12 hours of class, I believe the Lord is going to bring revelation. Just like I read one sentence and instantly in one sentence, he gave his whole revelation that I never understood. In just one sentence, the Lord can plant and expose and reveal so awesomely. Pastor Tom was talking about secular counseling. You can go through hundreds of hours, but what the Lord can do, and just like that, Amen. just like that, he brought a full revelation of some of the reasons that I behave in certain ways and some of the things that I do and the saying, the motivations, why I do them. In a second, he gave me revelation about why I do them. Now, that's not the end. Revelation is the beginning, amen? He didn't just come to bring me revelation, but he came to heal my broken heart. It's just like conviction when you come to the Lord. First, he has to convict you that you're a sinner. He has to convince you and convict you and show you that you're in need of a Savior. But if I just know that, yet don't partake in it, that's not the plan and goal for God. With revelation comes responsibility. If he reveals something to me about my heart, my past, and my woundedness, it's only for the purpose of healing that woundedness. Yeah? He doesn't just give knowledge and understanding for the sake of knowledge and understanding. It is a means to the end, which is Christ himself. And I believe in every person that takes this class. Don't get me wrong. If you don't take this class for whatever reason, God's not done with you. (laughs) Okay? I'm just saying I believe that God has ordained this class. He's ordained the teacher of this class, Reverend Frost. He has ordained the book that Reverend Frost chose called The Rejection Syndrome and The Way to Acceptance. I believe he has brought this stuff as a revelation, and he's going to use it to speak to your heart. Who in this place has received imperfect love at some time? All of us have received imperfect love. 
That's why it says in Proverbs, a command from God, that we are to guard our hearts in a righteous way because it is the wellspring. It is that thing which all things emanate out of. And we are supposed to guard it in a righteous way, meaning what? A guard only allows the things to come in that are beneficial. Yeah? And protects itself from everything that's negative. And I believe that Jesus is going to come and he's going to expose so everything that's inside you that is dysfunctional and decaying can come out. And everything that's beneficial can come in. But we have got to say yay and we got to say amen. Yes? That's why I want as many people that have woundedness. If you have woundedness and you're desiring for the Lord to heal up your broken heart and to set you free, amen. God has ordained such a time and such a class and God has been doing it everywhere I look, everywhere I turn, every time I read something. I told the life group the other night, I could pick up the Wall Street Journal and I'd read something that spoke to my woundedness. I cannot do nothing, but God has said, you can try to hide, Ty, but I'm coming after your woundedness. You say, I'll put the Bible down because I don't want him to convince. He says, I'll speak to you through the Wall Street Journal. I'll speak to you through, I'm speaking to you. Listen to me, son. He has got an agenda and a purpose in my life. He said, I'm tired of you carrying that ball and chain around. I'm tired of you trying to run the race with that ball and chain. Why don't you just stop for a second and let me cut that thing off and set free you from your captivity. Amen? I've told some of the people here, I'll say it again because some of you haven't heard it, the Lord gave me a revelation of myself about three or four weeks ago that I was running the race as a warrior and I had all the warrior garb on and I was carrying around this ball and chain. I was just carrying it around. And the Lord says, what are you doing? And he gave me this impression that when I first had the ball and chain as a Christian, I was kind of dragging it. I was like, Lord, I can't run very fast with this thing. So in my own wisdom, I picked it up and found more resourceful ways to carry this thing around. You know, so you're carrying it around. I can go a little faster this way. And they're like, man, this is hurting my back. I'll put it up on my shoulder. And I just kept finding new ways to carry around my burdens, new ways to carry around my pains and my hurts. And finally, I'm just, I'm like, just dragging this. I'm just, I can't carry it anymore. And he says, son, just stop. You're killing yourself. That's a yoke you cannot bear. Put it down. Let me set you free. And I said, Lord, how? He says, any way I want to. <laughs> you know, we want all the things, Lord. Show me exactly how you might do this, and I'll, I'll make sure that I say amen to it or not. You know, we want everything. I wanted everything. I want to know, is this going to make me like vulnerable? I have to be vulnerable before people? Might I have to actually disclose anything to any person? You know, that's how we do things. The Lord didn't even give me the answer. You know why he didn't give me the answer? Because it was the wrong question. See, the Lord is not obligated to answer the question when it's the wrong question. And he just says, I'm sorry, son, that's the wrong question. I'll do it the way I want to do it. It reminds me of Joshua when he was walking up and he saw the commander of the Lord's army. He says, are you for us or are you against us? He says, neither. It's not about you. You know what I'm saying? God, are you for me or are you against me? You know? It's about him. It's about Christ. The question that Christ has for you, are you for me or are you against me? Do you love me or do you love yourself? Carrying my own ball and chain and going my direction with my Christianity, that's not loving God. That's keeping self and seeing how fast I can run with it. That is not the purpose and plan for God in your life. Amen? He has come to set you free from that. Amen. I'm just going to, I didn't plan on saying that, but it's a great prelude to what we're talking about. I'm just going to talk for a minute on Galatians, okay? 
this is one of those things where, you know, I think the average preacher, when you preach a sermon, you do about, you know, 90% of what you want to say, and then you do like 10% of what the Word says about it, kind of thing. I'm going to try to do 90% of the Word today, maybe 10% of what reflections on it. I was reading this in my devotions, and this is my wife's Bible. I can't even find my Bible. If you see my Bible, please let me know. <laughs> the big red thing, you know, the big red case. I'm not sure where it went. It's around somewhere. So I, I grabbed my wife's Bible, and I, I bought this for her for like her birthday or something, and it has, it's a parallel with the New American Standard and the message. And I started reading the Galatians out of the message, and I tell you what, it just, it was just awesome. It was just so down to earth. It was so, I was like, does the word really say that? You know, they put it in a contemporary vernacular. You know, I was like looking at the NA, and I like the fact that they put it with the NSAB because that's like the most literal translation you'll ever get. I was like, yeah, that's, that's basically what it's saying, but it's just using more contemporary words. And I was just reading it, God was just speaking to me. And I said, I got to share this with the people because it's exactly what God's trying to do right now. This message that Paul wrote, he wrote it to the Galatians. So when I'm reading it to you, don't take it too personal. I mean, I'm not speaking right to you. But I believe that the, the principles and what God was saying through Paul to the Galatian church are many of the principles that affect all of the church, the American church, and I believe the church right here, us and me. I believe it. So don't get offended saying, I think that preacher is preaching right to me. <laughs> I'm not trying to offend you. I'm just reading what the word says. And if it applies to you, listen. I don't know what verse I'm starting. The message doesn't have verses. I'm thinking I'm somewhere around chapter 2 of Galatians and verse, I would guess, 15. So Paul says that we Jews know that we have no advantage of birth over non-Jewish sinners. We know very well that we are not set right with God by rule-keeping, but only through personal faith in Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? Paul says that we are not kept in Christ. We are not justified by our rule-keeping. You see, in the Protestant Reformation, we got it very good and very right that salvation, that entrance into relationship with Jesus Christ, comes by faith. That's the tenet of Protestantism, isn't it? But I believe that Luther and the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures have much more to say than about Christian initiation, about receiving the Lord. Yes, you enter into relationship by Christ by faith alone. But then what? Paul says right here that we are not justified by God on a continual basis by the keeping or the doing of rules and regulations. So what Paul's going to say here is, and he'll say it three or four more times in different ways, he's saying, fine, you entered into Christ by faith. Why do you abandon that? Isn't living your life supposed to be in faith? and not by works. See, what I see happening in my life, and what I see happening in many lives, even in this church, and especially the church at large, is I see people that receive Christ by faith and try to walk out the Christian walk by works. That's what I see. We try to exact a maturity in Christ by our own means. And I think Paul's major thing is he's coming against that tendency. And isn't it interesting that the beginning of the church, the church of Galatians, way back 2,000 years ago, the very same thing that they struggled with is what we struggle with. of trying to live out our Christianity in our own strength, in our own power. So we know very well that we are not set right with God by rule-keeping, but only through personal faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, how do we know? 
We tried it. And we had the best system of rules the world has ever seen. This is Paul talking. Convinced that no human being can please God by self-improvement, we believed in Jesus as the Messiah so that we might be set right before God by trusting in the Messiah, not by trying to be good. I don't preach, huh? By trusting in the Messiah. What's that mean? Messiah. What's Messiah mean? Meshach. What does that mean? Saved? Saving? Savior. What's he saving us from? From the very thing we're trying to do. Live out our own Christianity in our own strength. Self-improvement. Behavior modification. If you're in the life group, we talked about behavior modification. About looking at the outside and ending with the behavior. The behavior in our lives, Jesus is not principally focusing on your behavior. Does that set you free? He is not first and foremost interested in your behavior. Is he interested in your behavior? Yes. Is it crucial? Is it vital? Yes. I want everything that's external to be pure and righteous. But the difference between the way the world does it and the way Jesus does it is that the world tries to look at your behavior and he tries to polish it from the outside looking in. Where Jesus says, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm coming from within. And if I can change your heart from within, if I can bind up your woundedness from within, your behavior will change. Right? That's the way Jesus tries to do it. That's what he's saying in Luke chapter 4. That's what he's saying in Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news, right? To bind up the brokenhearted and to release those from captivity. It says in Jeremiah that the heart is exceedingly wicked. Who can understand it? Who can know it? And then in Jeremiah 31, he says, I'm going to send you a better covenant because your heart is so wicked. The problem is, is the law, it just condemns you. You lift up the law to somebody, and that's what we do so good. I do it great. I lift up the law and say, that's good behavior. That's bad behavior. Please conform. That's how we do it. I mean, that's the principal way we shepherd our children. That's the way that we interact with our spouses. They do something we don't like. We lift up the law to them. But Jesus is saying, I don't want you to lift up the law so you can say good behavior, bad behavior. That's what Jesus is trying to set us free from because we make the law powerless. The law of God is perfect, but we make it weak, right? That's what the scriptures say. And so Jesus says, I've come with a better covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31 says, I have come to give you a new covenant. I will come within you and transform your mind and your heart from within. And if your heart is transformed, your behavior takes care of itself. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus comes with the seven condemnations of the Pharisees. You hypocrites. He says, don't worry about the external dish. If the dish inside is pure, the outside will take care of itself. We have got to not be focused on behavior. If my child is doing something that has a heart attitude that's producing a negative behavior, the behavior is only a flag that draws me to his heart. If I just try to get him to do what I want him to do because I say that's bad behavior, I am not doing anything positive for him. What I'm doing is creating within him internal conflicts. Why? Because if I see a behavior in George, and I'm like, George, I just don't like that behavior. Would you please stop doing that behavior? And George is like, I don't want to be a rebel. I'll stop doing it. But what happens is there's a heart attitude that might be causing that behavior, let's say. And what happens is if I just get him to conform to my pressure, but he has a heart woundedness, let's say, that's producing that behavior, then his heart is saying, I need to produce this. 
But Pastor Ty says, I need to do this. Do you see the conflict that comes in? I am creating within him something called hypocrisy. What's hypocrisy? It's an actor. It's putting a shield, a mask in front of your face. I am making him on the external do something. On the internal, it's something different. Jesus wants us to go to our heart and heal it there. Then George's behavior, then my behavior, then your behavior, then your child's behavior, then your spouse's behavior will change. We need to go to the heart of the issue, to the depths of the heart. Jesus wants to transform us in our heart. This is why he wants to bind up your broken heart. This is why he wants to heal you from your woundedness. Don't get focused in on your behavior. Let the behavior only draw you to the source of that behavior. Behavior is never happenstance. It always comes out of the heart. It's the wellspring. Jesus wants to go to your heart. Will you let him? Will you allow yourself to be naked and exposed before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm just coming as I am. No more false pretenses. No more guarding myself. Lord, you want to heal my heart, and I'll let you do it any way you want to do it. Will you let him? So Paul says that we had tried it. We had the best system of rules the world has ever seen. And convinced that no human being can please God by self-improvement, we believed in Jesus. Have some of you noticed that we are not yet perfect, Paul says? And are you ready to make the accusation that since people like me who go through Christ in order to get things right with God aren't perfectly virtuous, Christ must therefore be an accessory to sin? The accusation is frivolous. If I was trying to be good, quote-unquote, I will be rebuilding the same old barn that I tore down. Isn't that cool? If I was trying to be good, if that was my goal in life, is to try to be good. Remember, can I use your example that you shared with us that there was a time in his life where Pastor Rick, he wanted to be the best psychologist. And by golly, he wanted to be the best Christian. And Paul basically is saying here, if my goal, if my end point was being good, remember Jesus said, there's none that are good. Just God's good. You're not good. But if our goal, Paul said, was being good, then I am trying to resurrect the same barn that I let be torn down. The same thing that he exchanged for finally salvation that took him being knocked down by the Lord and blinded for a season. Why would he want to resurrect that thing again? Paul says, I don't want to go back there. I'm not going to resurrect that barn. The Lord nearly had to kill me to tear it down. I am not going to resurrect it. My goal is not to be good, but my goal is to know Christ Jesus. And if you know Christ Jesus, and Christ Jesus knows you, and is doing something in your heart, the fruit is going to be evident. You don't have to worry about the goodness. Let Jesus worry about the goodness part. His goodness will come out of you. You don't have to worry about your goodness. Just seek the Lord. Just desire to know him. What actually took place is this, Paul says, I tried keeping rules and working my head off to please God, and it didn't work. So I quit being a lawman so that I could be God's man. Isn't that good? He came to the end of himself. He finally found out that he couldn't do it. Even mighty Paul couldn't do it. He says, I've come to the end of being a lawman. I just want to be God's man. I just want to be God's child. I believe that when you come to the end of yourself, that's when you start to come to the beginning of Christ. But you got to come to the end of yourself. And as soon as you do that, as soon as you set yourself on the path of decreasing, he will begin to increase. When you come to the end of yourself, you come to the beginning of Christ. 
So Christ's life showed me how and enabled me to do it. Didn't just show me, not just revelation, but also he did it through me. See, God never brings revelation just to bring revelation. He brought it to Paul, and Paul understood it and surrendered to it, and then Christ worked through it. I identified myself completely with him. Indeed, I have been crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. It is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. Oh, if we could just capture that. Do you know how much freedom you would have in your life? If you could actually receive that, that's called identity, and that's called acceptance in Christ. You cannot say that without true identity and acceptance in Christ. What's the book's name that we're reading for the Bible College class? Rejection Syndrome and the what? The Way of Acceptance. See, Paul had been set free from the rejection of his childhood, the rejection of growing up, the rejections all around him, imperfect love that was cast upon him. I believe that even his spiritual fathers, Gamaliel and others, they passed on to him rejection. Why? Because they gave him imperfect love. They taught him how to be a whitewashed sepulcher. They didn't teach him how to be truly intimate with the Father. And so that's rejection. That's imperfect love. Christ healed him from that. It took some years. We know that Paul was at least 15 years at a commission, getting his whole life broken down and built back up. Amen? See, Jesus won't come into your life and say, well, you've messed up a little bit. I'll just kind of fix it up and keep building. He tears it down. Why? Because he's going to the rock. We sang about it today, didn't we? He's going down to the rock. He's going down to the basement. He's going down to truly something solid that he can build back up on. And if you try to keep part of your old nature life, you try to keep your own worldviews and philosophies and say, now, Jesus, will you just kind of make an addition onto my, my spiritual house? He'll say, no, I am not building upon that. Yeah. He sees that thing's going to fall down. You're asking me to build something upon that rotting structure, that barn that needs to be blown away? He says, I am not building upon that. What he wants is say, Lord, come and tear this thing down and build back up again. See, that's what Paul allowed Christ to do. And it took some years to do it. But you know what? Jesus doesn't care. He just wants you to be in the river. Just be in the river going that direction. I believe healing is perpetual. I'm never going to look back someday and say, yes, I was totally healed and set free in 2005. No. Just as much as my salvation experience is not a historical fact, it's a present reality. I am being saved. What? From me. From me. Right. Being saved from me. I have a way that seems very right. I have a great theology. It just doesn't happen to align all the time with this book. There's a way that seems right unto me. But Jesus says it's going to lead to death. He has come to save me from that. And he's come to save you from your philosophies and your theologies. He's come to show himself for who he really is. Because in every form of rejection in our life, I believe that rejection puts upon us a false image of who Christ is and who the Father is. And the role of the Holy Spirit is to show us, to renew within us who the Father really is. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So it is no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. I am no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. 
The life you see me living is not mine. Hallelujah. But it is lived by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I am not going to go back on that. I'm not going to resurrect that old barn of self-effort. Is it not clear to you that to go back to the old rule-keeping, peer-pleasing religion would be an abandonment of every personal and free thing in my relationship with God? I refuse to do that, Paul says, to repudiate God's grace. If a living relationship with God could come by rule-keeping, then Christ died unnecessarily. The NIV says that I am not going to frustrate basically the grace of God. See, Jesus has given you life to live the life. Don't frustrate the grace of God. He has paid the path by the cross. He has given you every opportunity for the exchanged life. See, he didn't come into your life to modify your life, to adjunct your life. He came into your life so your life can be crucified in him. And you can truly say like Paul that I am crucified in Christ. Amen? You and I need the exchanged life. Yes. I think we're on chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, you crazy Galatians, did someone put a hex on you? Have you taken leave of your senses? Something crazy has happened. For it is obvious that you no longer have the crucified Jesus in clear focus in your lives. His sacrifice on the cross was certainly set before you clearly enough. Let me put this question to you. How did your new life begin? Was it by working your heads off to please God? Or was it by responding to God's message to you? Are you going to continue this craziness? For only crazy people would think that they could complete by their own efforts what was begun by God. Isn't that good? How could we think that something that is totally God, totally a spiritual reality, the biggest miracle that could ever happen is that he could take a lousy sinner like me and call him saved. How could you start something like that and then think that you're going to finish it in your own strength? How could you do it? How could you so focus on your external behavior and look for people and yourself to modify your behavior to call what is good and acceptable by the culture called Christianity? Why would you justify yourself that way? Let me change you on the inside. If you weren't smart enough or strong enough to begin it, how do you suppose you could perfect it? See, Jesus came and he reconciled himself to you. He started this business. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Before the foundations of the world, Christ set in his purpose to come for you and me. He started this thing called redemption. How do you think you can continue it? How can we be so caught up on the external thing? Would we let Jesus come and set us free from that? Did you go through this whole painful learning process for nothing? It is not yet a total loss, but it certainly will be if you keep this up. Answer this question. Does the God who lavishly provides you with his own presence, his Holy Spirit, working things in your life you could never do for yourself, does he do these things because of your strenuous moral striving or because you trust him to do it in you? Don't these things happen among you just as they happened with Abraham? He believed God, and that act of belief was turned into a life that was right with God. 
So those now who live by faith are blessed along with Abraham who lived by faith. This is no new doctrine. And that means that anyone who tries to live by his own effort, independent of God, is doomed to failure. Scripture backs this up. Utterly cursed is every person who fails to carry out every detail written in the book of the law. The obvious impossibility of carrying out such a moral program should make it plain that no one can sustain a relationship with God that way. The person who lives in right relationship with God does it by embracing what God arranges for him. I believe that's what I've tried to emphasize today. See, God has arranged things for us. He's arranged everything you need to be set free from yourself. You do not have an excuse. He has given you everything that you need. He has given you his own presence, the Holy Spirit, to work and exact the will of God through your life. See, you don't have to exact the will of God on your own. He will do it through you if you exchange your life. I'm not talking about salvation when you accept Christ. I'm talking about the now. I'm talking about today. How we live your life. How many times as Paul says, in Christ. In Christ. We can only please the Father in Christ. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. I'm telling you, this message, if you can understand, if the Lord would just allow you to receive it, would be the biggest deliverer and freedom you've ever experienced in your life. There is nothing more strenuous and more arduous and more weight-bearing and more burdensome than trying to carry out this thing called Christianity apart from the indwelling, inner work, crucified life of the cross. It is just like a person trying to fight a battle with a ball and a chain and it's wearing you out. You've let yourself in your woundedness, you have tried to modify your own behavior, you've allowed other people's impression and stresses on your life modify your behavior, and it's driving you down, and the Lord says, stop, and let me set you free. So that everything you purpose in your life, everything that comes out of your mouth, everything that you do, and the motivations that you do them, are inspired by the inner work of His love. You can have two people going down downtown Stanwood to witness about Jesus Christ. One person can be totally percent motivated by their woundedness and their hurts and their pains. And the other person's there as an extension of agape, an extension of the love of God, doing the same thing, one out of woundedness, one out of agape. You cannot agape out of your woundedness. You can't. So every command in Scripture, when the Lord says, love one another, the impression is you have to allow the crucified life to flow through you or you cannot do it. I cannot agape my wife out of my woundedness and my pains. What will I do? I will give her love. What kind of love? Well, love with a hook on it. Amen? My woundedness demands I need things from people. I need you to affirm me. I need you to do this for me. I need you. Why? Because my acceptance, my identity, my security aren't in Christ. They're in you. And you're like a drug. And I need to, I, you got, you got to affirm me. And if you don't affirm me, my world's going to break down. It's love with a hook. Right? Come, please, pat my back. Tell me how good I am. You know? I need your security. I need your identity. Please help me. It's a drug. 
It's a soulish drug. It's an addiction. It's a woundedness. It's a pain. And only Christ can heal that pain. Only Christ can bind up your broken heart. Don't be satisfied with the external. I had a man that came into my clinic the other day, and he's going through a divorce and having a hard time. And, but he's himself allowed the crucified life to come upon him out of this thing. His wife right now is not interested in trying to reconcile. He would long to reconcile. His wife won't do it, and, and is proceeding towards divorce. But every time I meet this guy, which is like every three or four months, I just see that the Lord is working in his life. He's coming to the end of himself. And I talked to him just the other day, and I was talking to him about he was taking an antidepressant for a season. I said, you know what happens with the antidepressant is, is it basically is like trying to take a polish to corrupting fruit. And I'm going to try to make that thing look a little bit better from the outside. You see, the depression is a behavior. It's, a, it's an outward expression of what's happening in the heart of him. It's not happenstance. It wasn't like, poof, all of a sudden you're depressed. That behavior, that manifestation of it's coming from the wellspring. And I challenged him. I said, why don't you let the Lord come into your heart in such a way to heal that wound and that pain? And I told him, is this one of those times where the Lord wanted to communicate an agape message to him? And you just know when you're speaking, I'm like, I'm speaking and this is not me. You ever had that experience? I don't know where the word came from. I just said, friend, I don't know nothing about your past. But I could just see that when you and your wife were together, they're separated now. I could just see that you guys are two goats. It's bam, 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 bam. That you had so much rejection in your life and she had so much rejection in your life and you guys are triggering each other and pam, 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 pam. And his eyes are just opening. And I said, I know what happened. You probably, your father, probably did not treat you right, did not give you the love that you needed. And I mean, he was just getting emotionally shaken. I said, the Lord can set you free from that. That is the hope for your marriage. That is the hope for every relationship is in Christ Jesus. Let him come to the source of the problem. Don't worry about the external. Don't worry about the thing. Don't worry about the dep- God will heal the depression. Focus in on the heart, the wellspring. Let agape love of Christ come and set you free in the inside. Your depression will flee away. Amen? What will take the place? Joy. The very presence of God, what he is, joy and peace and patience, kindness and goodness, it'll flow out of you. It has to. Amen. I'm not sure where I'm at. I'll just start reading. Doing things for God is the opposite of entering into what God does for you. Habakkuk had it right. The person who believes God is set right by God. And that's real life. Rule keeping does not naturally evolve into living by faith, but only perpetuates itself in more and more rule keeping. A fact observed in scripture, quote, the one who does these things, rule keeping, continues to live by them. Christ redeemed us from that self-defeating, cursed life by absorbing it completely into himself. Do you remember the scripture says, curse is everyone who hangs on a tree? That is what happened when Jesus was nailed to the cross. He became a curse and at that same time dissolved the curse. And now because of that, the air is cleared and we can see that Abraham's blessing is present and available for non-Jews too. We are all able to receive God's life, his spirit in and with us by believing just the way Abraham received it. Friends, let me give you an example from everyday affairs of the free life that I am talking about. Once a person's will has been ratified, no one else can annul it or add to it. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his descendants. 
You will observe that Scripture in careful language of a legal document does not say to descendants, referring to everybody in general, but to your descendant, referring to Christ. This is the way that I interpret it. I'm going to skip down a few more. It says, until the same time when we were mature enough to respond freely in faith to the living God, we were carefully surrounded and protected by the Mosaic law. The law was like those of Greek tutors with which you are familiar, who escort children to school and protect them from danger or distraction, making sure the children will really get to the place they set out for. But now you have arrived at your destination. By faith in Christ, you are in direct relationship with God. Your baptism in Christ was not just washing you up for a fresh start. I like that. Your baptism, your initiation was not just to clean you up and set you free and say, go about it. That was not the purpose of God. It involved dressing you in an adult faith wardrobe, Christ's life, the fulfillment of God's original promise. I got to read that again. It's so good. But now you have arrived at your destination. By faith in Christ, you are in direct relationship, intimacy with God. Your baptism in Christ was not just washing you up for a fresh start. It also involved dressing you in an adult faith wardrobe, Christ's life, the fulfillment of God's original promise. I'm going to skip over to chapter 4. I'm going to start with verse 1 of chapter 5. Christ has set us free to live a free life. So take your stand. Never again let anyone put a harness of slavery on you. Never let yourself put that harness of slavery on you. Be set free today. You do not have to do it in your own strength. You cannot do it in your own strength. Let Christ give you the exchanged Life. That's the only life of freedom. I am emphatic about this. The moment any one of you submits to circumcision or any other rule-keeping system, at that same moment, Christ's hard-won gift of freedom is squandered. I repeat my warning. The person who accepts the ways of circumcision trades all the advantages of the free life in Christ for the obligations of the slave life of the law. That's where I'm guilty. I have been very guilty in my own relationship with my wife and my children of being an elevator of the law, not liking behavior. And so I try to fix the behavior without letting Jesus come to the heart. The Bible basically says that that is not commendable. That is condemnable. If we are simply going out trying to polish up people's dysfunction without letting Jesus come to the heart, we are creating more of a problem. That's why if somebody comes into the church body and hears the word of God, and yet we do not try to go to that person with the life-changing gospel, we make them worse. It's not about just bringing people in. Jesus accused the Pharisees of going over land and sea to win one single convert and making them twice the son of hell as he is. But how often do we do the same thing? It's not just about inviting someone to church. Coming to church does not save you or set you free. It's the life of Christ in the heart. 
If I want my wife to be set free, then I need to stop coming after her behavior. What does it do when you come after someone's behavior? They take six steps back from you. Right? When I was going after my wife's behavior, see, when I was first married, I was very, very organized. Everything had its place, and everything had its purpose. Jesus, through my wife, has set me free from that. (laughs) Amen. Hallelujah. I tell you what, there's many a conflict by my attempts at behavioral modification because it was sinful. I remember even saying it almost like that. Uh, This is not a good stewardship tomorrow of our stuff here. You know, there's a purpose for everything. I I put in this Christian jargon. Why? Because I wanted to use some kind of spiritual emphasis to get my way. You know? And I thought if I use a little scripture and a verse here and a little spiritual application here, that would certainly convince her that my way was a better way. And she would conform to my pattern and my desires. I remember many a conflict about that. Basically, I was asking her to do something that she could not do. And if that is not frustrating, what is? How often in your children, if you're raised your children or raising your children, where you're trying to require them to do something that they cannot do? How that frustrates your child. And if you do that enough, anger will arise within them because they're getting stressed to do something that they have no capabilities of fulfilling. But you realize that you're doing the same thing for your life? When you make yourself try to engage in the Christian life, you can't do it. You're just deceived into thinking that you can. And Jesus is saying, I want to set you free from that. I want to set you free from trying to be good. You cannot be good. You are a son and a daughter of hell. That was your destiny but Christ. Yeah? In your depraved nature, you were not good. You were evil. You were wicked. The intents of your heart were filthy. But Christ came, paid the price, and gave his Holy Spirit to live out the purpose and the will of God in your life. That's freedom. I bound my wife up by my human expectations of her. I frustrated her. I confused her. I put internal conflicts within her because I tried to make her on the outside do something that her heart could not do. That's condemnable, not commendable. What should I have done? I should have used the Lord and said, Lord, what's going on in my wife's heart that's expressing certain behaviors? And Lord would somehow... Could you touch that heart? Could you give me the words to say that would go right to her heart? See, when Jesus walked this earth, he was not going about trying to fix people's behavior. He was going right to their hearts. Remember when he walked with the two men on the road to Emmaus? What did they say? Weren't our hearts burning within us as we walked with him and as we talked with him? Amen. He went right for the heart because that's the epicenter which all things radiate out of. Let's go beyond people's behavior. You will set people free if you stop going after their behavior. You will set them free. Why? Because in their woundedness and their rejection, they want to comply to your demands. And so you you set up all sorts of conflict within them. Set people free by not worrying about their behavior and focusing on their heart. If there's a sin attitude that comes out of a person's heart, if you focus on the behavior, see, Jesus Christ did not come to save you from your behavior. He came to save you from your life, the very nature of who you were, the core 
the epicenter. And if you never bring Christ to that person's part of their life, you're not going to help them. See, when my child does something that's sinful, I do not have to teach my children how to be selfish. They seem to have figured that one out themselves. But you know what? If I just go up to them and try to instantly just modify, but you know, the, if Jeremiah is not sharing with Isaiah, I just grab the toy out of his hand. You're being selfish. Give that toy to him. I have dealt with behavior, but I have not dealt with his heart. And when I can pull him aside and say, son, do you notice what happened right there? And I'm willing to actually entreat him, to love him, to respect him. You know you're supposed to respect and honor your children too? Yeah? They are created by God with a will. And I'm not supposed to trounce over their will at my own whim, out of my own woundedness. But if I were to take my son privately and say, son, do you know what just happened there? And I can say, son, do you know why that happened? Do you know why that behavior came out? It was because in your heart there was selfishness. But I have good news. The Lord Jesus Christ came. And now I have invited Christ to come to the foundation of the problem. Yeah? I didn't stay at the external. The behavior only was a signal to me at, ah, something in the heart has gone awry. It's an opportunity. It's a red flag that something's going on in the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And our behavior should only be a red flag. It should only be a warning signal that something's wrong in the heart. And now I have the opportunity to let Christ come into the heart and change my son, to change my wife, to change you or me. If my purpose is only to get after your behavior, then I am not doing the purpose of Christ. We have got to be a people that can let Christ come and heal our hearts and ourselves can set people free from their behavior and their external goodness and recognize that Christ is just interested in the heart. I suspect that you would never intend this But this is what happens. When you attempt to live by your own religious plans and projects, you are cut off from Christ. You fall out of grace. Meanwhile, we expectantly wait for a satisfying relationship with the Spirit. For in Christ, neither our most conscientious religion nor disregard of religion amounts to anything. What matters is something far more interior. Faith expressed in agape. Did you catch that? What matters is something far more interior. Faith expressed in agape. You were running superbly. Who cut in on you, deflecting you from the true course of obedience? This detour doesn't come from the one who called you into the race in the first place. And please don't toss this off as insignificant. That's my communication to you. Don't toss this off as insignificant. It only takes a minute amount of yeast, you know, to permeate an entire loaf of bread. Deep down, the master has given me confidence that you will not defect. But the one who is upsetting you, whoever he is, will bear the divine judgment. Skipping down some more. It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, Cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, 
An impotence to love or to be loved. Divided homes and divided lives. Small-minded and lopsided pursuits. The vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival. Uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions. Ugly parodies and community. I could go on. This isn't the first time I have warned you, you know. If you use your freedom this way, you will not inherit God's kingdom. But what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Legalism is helpless in bringing these things about. It only gets in the way. Among those who belong to Christ, everything connected with getting our own way and mindlessly responding to whatever else calls necessities is killed off for good. Since this is the kind of life we have chosen, the life of the Spirit, let us make sure that we do not just hold it as an idea in our heads or a sentiment in our hearts, but work out its implications in every detail of our lives. That means we will not compare ourselves with each other as if one of us were better and another worse. We have far more interesting things to do with our lives. Each of us is an original. You know, I've shared this morning with some of the pastors a a book that I read some years back, and it talked about the day of judgment seat of Christ, if you will, and how each of us is given a measure of faith. And out of the measure of faith, it's a gift from God, we are responsible for that. And to some people, there might be a a hundredfold, a hundred units of faith given by Christ. To another, maybe just five. But you know what? Our responsibility is simply to be faithful with what Christ has given us. And it showed this man who was a drunkard at one time, and he was homeless, and he he was frustrated about his life. He had seen that he had given up everything because of the alcohol. And finally, God was starting to work in his life. And God added this guy who started to yearn and started looking towards the Lord. He was still homeless. And God planted within him five units of faith. And in that five units of faith, he saw a cat and he was frustrated about life. And he was getting ready to kick the cat and he restrained from kicking the cat. And he compared to a man who had a hundred units of faith given him. He was a prestigious pastor, an influential leader. But you know what? He only used that hundred units, about 50% effective. And the other one, he squandered. Who was the more faithful? To much who has been given, much will be expected. This man that had just a small amount of faith imparted and it restrained him from injuring the cat is faithfulness. We cannot judge one to another. I cannot judge me compared to you. I cannot take the most ignorant of people or people that have certain dysfunctions or anything else and try to compare one to another. We are all original. We all have a personal relationship with God. And all of us have a measure of faith given by God. And the Lord does not judge the way that I judge. And this man who had just initiated a relationship with Christ, homeless and a drunkard, pretty bad behavior, huh? But received his first allotment of faith by Christ. And he was faithful with it. And the kingdom of God was higher 
in position, if you will, than the man who had been given 100 units and was only 50% faithful. This man probably led many people to Christ. Yet it's not about that, is it? Jesus is not going to position you in his kingdom based on how many people you won to Jesus. It's about faithfulness in what you've received. We cannot compare one to another. So we're going to conclude chapter 6. Live creatively, friends. If someone falls into sin, forgivenly restore him, saving your critical comments for yourself. You might be needing forgiveness before the day is out. Stoop down and reach out to those who are oppressed. Share their burdens and so complete Christ's law. If you think you are too good for that, then you are badly deceived. Make a careful exploration of who you are in the work that you have been given and then sink yourself into that. Don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself with others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. Be very sure now, you who have been trained a self-sufficient maturity, that you enter into a generous, common life with those who have trained you. I'm skipping over now. Now in these last sentences, I want to emphasize in bold scrawls in my personal handwriting the immense importance of what I have written to you. These people who are attempting to force the ways of rule-keeping on you have only one motive. They want an easy way to look good before others, lacking the courage to live by a faith that shares Christ's suffering and death. All their talk about the law is gas. They themselves keep the, don't keep the law, and they are highly selective in the laws they do observe. They only want you to be circumcised or rule-keeping so they can boast of their successes in recruiting you to their side. That is contemptible. For my part, I am going to boast about nothing but the cross of our Master Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, I have been crucified in relation to the world, set free from the stifling atmosphere of pleasing others and fitting into the little patterns that they dictate. Can't you see the central issue in all this? Is it not what you and I do submit to circumcision, reject circumcision? It is what God is doing. And he is creating something totally new, a free life. All who walk by this standard are the true Israel of God and his chosen people. Peace and mercy on them. Do you understand what I'm saying? We just read through the scripture. I don't want you to leave here saying, well, I want, oh, Pastor Ty says that oh, my behavior is not that important. Your behavior is so important that Christ came and died and gave his spirit to dwell within you because that's the only thing that can positively heal and produce righteous behavior. He just did it the right way. The law focuses on behavior. The spirit of God focuses on your heart. We must choose which path we're going to take. Jesus desires that you just come as you are. Amen? I'm going to close. I was reading. I was at my mom's house, and she had this book on the coffee table. And it says, Amazing Grace, Glorious Refrains. And all it is, it's, a, it's a pictures of Thomas Kincaid's paintings, and he puts with them different hymns. And he gives a little bit about the history of the hymn, and I read it, and God just really touched me. Like I said, everywhere I pick up, anything I pick up, God is speaking right to my heart about my woundedness. And I want to close with what Thomas Kincaid has written about just as I am. 
It says, religion, I have heard said, is man's attempt to reach God. Whether through good works, rules, restrictions, or withdrawal from life, we innately feel the need to earn a position of favor through our behavior before God's throne, or at least to have something to say for ourselves. But Jesus doesn't call us to religion. He desires a relationship with us. One with no strings attached. One where all the debts are paid. All ex- expectations have been met. And only love and support exists. It's a relationship like no other. He is able to welcome us sinners just as we are. For one simple reason. He bought us. He paid for our souls with his own holy blood, exchanging his righteousness for our filthy rags of sin. He covers us with the perfection God requires in all of his children. And we don't have to do anything to get this gift except to receive it. It doesn't sound fair. It's certainly nothing we deserve. But it's all a part of God's incredible plan of forgiveness. Whenever I begin to forget this blessed truth, And by instead to Satan's lie that I must earn God's love, I follow this exercise. I ask myself, how many of my sins were in the future when Christ died for them? All of them. Does that mean that your sins are forgiven? Yes. In fact, the Bible says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait until we could get our act together before he wanted us. He wants us just as we are. And as we learn to rest in the beautiful work he has done in our hearts, our lives also begin to change. We turn away from our sin because our desire is to please him. And sin's grip on our lives loses its hold. Then his love molds us into his own image, where our lives become the very reflection of his light in us. If you were to take a poll and ask people if they like themselves just as they are, you probably get a large array of answers in the negative. Some people might not like anything about themselves. Others would like to be a little richer, a little thinner, a little more outgoing, a little less outgoing, taller, shorter, more successful, more spiritual, more organized, more healthy. Maybe one in a thousand would say, yes, I like myself just as I am. While there is always room for improvement, the inability of most people to accept themselves as they are are going to the very root of their being. Some things we can work to change or do better. Other things cannot be changed by ourselves. And we would do well to learn to accept ourselves as Christ. The author of this hymn, Just As I Am, learned the hard way about accepting herself. For God allowed some unexpected and unpleasant changes in her life. She had known a carefree and active life, but then a disease changed everything. Watching her life change quickly from all she had known to all she had never desired, caused periods of great introspection and even anger at God. But through her difficulty came the words of this hymn, originally written as a poem, that have stirred millions to come to the Savior who accepts them just as they are. The author of this text was Charlotte Elliott, born in Clapham, England, March 18, 1789. Charlotte grew up to become a popular portrait artist and writer of humorous verse. Her father was a viker of Clapham, Her brother followed and his father into the ministry. Charlotte was known for her carefree ways and enjoyed life immensely. Then everything changed. In 1819, at age 30, her health suddenly began to fail. 
Her body faced a serious ailment that left her with feelings of being overpowered by weakness and exhaustion, forcing her to spend most of her days in bed, a virtual invalid. This would be enough to spin many of us into a dark depression, and it was no different for Charlotte. She became increasingly sad and despondent. Her inability to accomplish anything at all forced her to question God's love and concern for her, as well as to question her value as a human being. Then in 1822, the light began to dawn. Her father invited a friend to dinner in their home, a prominent evangelist and minister from Switzerland named Dr. Caesar Milan. At the dinner table, the conversation turned to spiritual matters, and Charlotte expressed her pain. The minister spoke to Charlotte about her need to become a Christian and to give her burdens to Christ. Charlotte was offended by his comment, but it shook her to the core. A few weeks later, she met Dr. Mylan again, and by then, had sensed a burning desire in her heart. At that point, she told him that she had been trying to find the Savior, but did not know how to come to him. His answer, come to him just as you are. He told Charlotte that she could come to the Savior with her pain, with her doubts, with her fears, with her anger, and that Christ would put his love in their place. From that moment, Charlotte's life was changed. She never regained her health, but she had gone from despair to faith. Indeed, when we come to Christ, we have not one plea, nothing to recommend us except the blood of Christ that has been shed for us. He bids us to come to him. He is calling. I think we have the words. I want to, if you have the words to that hymn, if you could put it up. The first verse says, just as I am, without one plea. When we finally come to that place in Christ, where we say, Lord, I'm not coming to you so you can do a bunch of stuff for me, but I'm coming to you because of you, because of who you are. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, that thou biddest me to come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. We need not wait to come to the Savior. We don't need to clean up our lives before he will accept us. The blood of Christ alone can cleanse us from sin, and so we must first come to him, waiting not so that his blood can cleanse each spot. Christ died not for saints but for sinners, sinners just like you and me. He takes us just as we are. Just as I am, though tossed about, with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come. Likewise, we need not resolve all of our doubts, fears, and questions before we come to the Savior. May we feel tossed about with many conflicts, many doubts. Facing internal and external battles, only Christ can help us make sense of them all. Only Christ offers the freedom and forgiveness we so desperately need. Like Charlotte, we don't need to understand the answers. We simply need to come as we are, weak helpless, burdened, alone, sick, and let God do his mighty work in us. This is basically what he was telling me when he wants to bind up my broken heart. And I said, why? How? 
How will you do it, Lord? He says, the way I want to do it. We come as we are, poor, wretched, and blind. And we find in Christ sight, riches, and healing. Not that Christ takes away all of our problems. He did not heal Charlotte's illness. But he gives the answers he knows we need the most. He did not heal Charlotte's body, but he healed her from the inside. And God used her illness to allow her to write these words that would change lives across the globe. These blessed words have allowed many people who have been unable to accept themselves to comprehend for the first time that God accepts them as they are. The words of this hymn were not immediately written upon Charlotte's conversion. In fact, it wasn't until 14 years later that Charlotte penned them. Obviously, the impact of Dr. Milan's words had stayed with her for many years. In the meantime, her brother had become vicar of the parish in Brighton. He desired to build a school for the children of poor clergymen. He began raising the funds for this endeavor. He held bazaars and other types of fundraising projects, but Charlotte could not help in any of them because of her illness. There was one thing she could do, however, and that was to write poetry. She had been writing poetry for many years, and so she sat down to pen a poem that she helped would sell to generate income for the school. The little phrase that had changed her life, just come to him as you are, formed the basis for her poem and her own experiences fill in the rest. The sale of this poem brought in more funds for her brother's school than all the other fundraising efforts combined. The poem was published in 1836 along with the second edition of a collection of her poetry called The Invalid's Hymn Book. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Because of thy promise, I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. And so we come, sinners, needing grace and forgiveness, poor, wretched, blind, afraid, alone, burdened, depressed, rebellious, we come. And just as we are, Christ receives us. He wraps us in his strong, loving arms with welcome, pardon, cleansing, and sweet relief. Come to the Lamb of God. Believe his promise to save you. He will receive you just as you are. Friends, I don't want you to get the understanding that Jesus comes because he condones sin. He comes because he's the only solution for sin. He accepts you just for who you were, not because that because of your rebellion and your sin that he himself likes that, but he loves you so much that he accepts you just as you are. Remember when Jesus made the distinction between the man of God who says, Lord, I'm glad you didn't make me like this sinner, and the man who sees his own depravity and beats on his chest and says, basically, in mercy, would you forgive me of my sin? Jesus comes to that person just as he is in his sin. That's the Savior's love for you and me. Will you receive the freedom that Christ so desperately desires to give you today? He is not waiting for you to be good. He is not waiting for you to achieve. He is not waiting for anything. He just wants you to come to him so he can begin this love process of taking his divine love and let it come through and cleanse you from the inside. Would you let him do that? Be set free today. Be set free from behavior. Be set free. I set you free, and I ask you to forgive me if in any way, whether from this pulpit or from one-on-one -on -one or in a life group, I have tried to modify your behavior. 
That is not commendable. That is condemnable. I ask that you forgive me because it was wrong. Christ has set us free from that. And we ought to set each other free from the demands of our behavior. Can we not, the same way that Christ loves me for who I am right now, can we not love each other for who we are right now? Should we ought to hold our love back, waiting for that person to do something to merit my love, to merit my acceptance? Should I wait for them to do something? Christ didn't wait. Nothing would take him, nothing would intercept him from going to that cross. He did not wait. Let us not wait to give away the love of God. Let us not put demands and conditions upon loving people. Let's not fill up our lives with busyness to keep ourselves from doing what is the heart of God, which is to love people. See, busyness is never an excuse for loving. It's what we do out of our woundedness to keep us from doing which is scary, which is loving. Busyness is never the excuse. Busyness is a symptom of woundedness to keep us from doing what is hard, loving. We must receive the love of God, be set free by the love of God, and then we can give that freedom to other people. When I said to my wife not long ago, honey, I'm sorry for trying to modify you, to trying to manipulate you and control you. I'm sorry for that. I love you for who you are. You know what happened? She just broke. There was this, I mean, it was like this, you couldn't see it, but you could see it. This, you could see the shackle break in her life. I gave her freedom by accepting her for who she was just as she is. I freed her, and Christ has given you that same freedom. If you'll just receive it, that he loves you for who you are. If you never did a good thing again, he loves you for who you are. He accepts you for who you are. If you'll just receive him today. He'll modify your behavior, but he'll do it through your heart, which I cannot do by myself. I cannot modify my behavior by changing my heart, and neither can I change your heart by myself. I can only take the love of God and go right to your heart with it. And so here's the love of God. We need to be shepherding each other's hearts, not trying to corral each other's behavior and modify them. Christ has set you free from it. Now take that freedom and extend it to other people. If you have been guilty as I have been guilty of trying to change people from the outside, would you go to them at some point in these next days and ask them to forgive you and tell them that you love them with the love of God for who they are right now? That is the love that buckles people's knees. A love without condition. A love that doesn't mandate they do anything for you, to love them for who they are. That's Christ's love for you and me. I tell you what, if, if husband, if you have done that to your spouse, your wife, like I have done to mine, if you will, in an intimate moment, one-on-one, -on -one, if you will just confess that to her, ask her to forgive you, and say, I love you, honey, for who you are. I don't want to change you. I want to love you. Would you forgive me? I tell you what, Oh, I tell you what, the devil does not want you to say that. He will give you every excuse not to say that because the devil would have you going about your father's business by carrying away your ball and chain as fast as you can. He loves it when you do that. But if you go up to someone's ball and chain that they're carrying because of your demands in their life and you just 
break that chain and release them from that bondage and ask them to forgive you, I tell you what, some marvelous things happen. Marvelous things happen. If you have created a ball and chain in your relationship with your spouse, you cannot pray effectively together. Because what's happened is your relationship is a lot of dysfunction, a lot of performance and behavior-based. How are you in the spirit going to come together and hold hands and pray? But if you will do what I have just encouraged you to do, if you're guilty, if you have done what I have done, if you will take an intimate moment with your spouse and do that, I tell you what, you can grab the hand of that spouse and you can pray with such authority. The devil does not want you to do it. There is nothing more powerful than a husband and a wife in one accord and in unity praying. That's why you hardly ever see it because the devil knows it and he wants to do anything he can to keep a man and a woman from praying together. Marriage is not man-made. It is divine. It is a spiritual entity, a spiritual reality. And when a man and a woman under Christ come together, they can shake the heavens and the earth. You can shake the heavens and the earth. You can pray a prayer for your child that might be going wayward, or you see something you're just uncomfortable with what's going on in your child's life. I tell you, if you are in unity because you have freed each other from the bondage of the slavery of works based in performance and behavior modification, if you can truly grab your spouse's hand, and if you guys can look at each other in the eye and say, I free you from my expectations. I love you for who you are. If you can do that with your children, if you can take your children in an intimate moment, and if you have been guilty of behavior modifying them and not shepherding their hearts, not taking Christ to their hearts, not taking the love of God to the source, if you have been guilty of that, like I have been guilty of that, if you will take an intimate moment with your child and free them from that, marvelous things are going to happen in your relationship with your children. Marvelous things. That's going to be like the catalyst that frees them and starts to bring about healing of their wounded heart. Because when you try to behavior modify your children without going to the heart, you are rejecting them because it's imperfect love. If you will start by asking them to forgive you and releasing that, I tell you what, you're going to see marvelous things start to happen. Amen? This is putting the gospel, putting agape, putting feet on it. Every sermon needs to have some feet on it. This is the feet to the message. If you have done it in your personal life, you need to spend an intimate moment with God and say, God, you have set me free from that. I receive your agape love for who I am right now. And as soon as you receive it, go to those who you have affected and ask them to forgive you and set them free from it. Set them free from it. Set them free. Now here is my friend, Scott Farah, and he's going to help you with your business. Scott? Jesus teaches us that we should never do anything without making a plan first. Most small business owners fail to follow this biblical principle and do not have a written plan for where they want to be in one year, three years, five years. Yet every large business has a written plan. Many who wish to start their own businesses do not develop a plan first. This is one of the major reasons that 80% of all small businesses fail within the first five years. God worked through me to develop a unique educational program for business people. Quite frankly, this program has changed people's lives. If you currently own a business or if you're thinking about going into business for yourself, you need the independence program. 
visit our website, independenceprogram.training. And if you choose to purchase this unique educational program, make sure that you use promo code WMI. It will give you a 5% discount. So if what you have just heard resonates with you, and if you care and you want to be an unsung hero, I implore you, please take a few seconds to call us today and leave a message with a short prayer for us because we need to know that you are with us and care enough to be part of the spark with us so that together we can move God to send a great awakening that can reverse the inevitability of God's coming judgment according to what God spoke in Jeremiah 18, 7, and 8. We believe that if you joined hands with us, together we can save America from certain catastrophic judgment. So call now, okay? Dial 360-629-5248 and say a short prayer for us in your message and leave your phone number too, okay? So one more time, 360-629-5248. Thank you and God bless.